Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. I recently had the privilege of traveling to northwestern Australia for the Australian Rangeland Society biannual meeting in Broome, held mid-September of 2023. I was there to represent the International Society for Range Management and to talk about a grazing decision support tool we just built uh, called StockSmart. Some friends there set up a two-day visit to the Napier Downs cattle station about 350 kilometers inland from the northwest coast. James and Barbara Camp and their ranch crew welcomed us and generously agreed to an interview about livestock grazing in that part of the world. This is my interview with James and Barbara on site at the ranch in the staff kitchen, so it will sound a bit roomy. Here's James and Barbara. Welcome back to the Art of Range. I'm actually in Western Australia with James and Barbara Camp on the Napier Downs station, and I'm I'm thrilled to be here. It was good to meet you and welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Dad. Uh, maybe, Barbara, let's start with you. You're Scottish. Were you actually born in Scotland and you ended up here? How did you end up in the middle of nowhere in Western Australia? Uh, I have that age-old story. I was born, bred and raised in Scotland. I um, was very passionate about horses. I went to university and got a degree in equine science, then did not want to get a job. So I went backpacking. The first place that took me was up here to the Kimberley, where I met James at the airport. Picked me up for my first job as a Jillaroo 16 years ago, and they've not got rid of me since. It's not a bad way to go. Yeah. <laughs> and James, you you've you were born here, right? Not right here, but born in Australia. Yes, yes, I was born born and raised in this area. Yeah, I've, I've always worked in the Kimberleys. Um, and your family has a cattle station to the south. Yes, yeah. So they own a property on the on the banks of the Fitzroy River. Um, yeah, on the uh, third generation camp in the area. We've always been on hmm. on properties around here. Yeah, I'm still trying to get my brain around the, the scale of things here. Uh, but all of these cattle stations have names like Napier Downs, Kimberley Downs. What's the history of that term as as the name of a, what I would call a ranch? Uh, the Downs, I'm not really sure um, exactly where the Downs comes from. I think it's just a, a land system. I suppose it's like um, the prairies you have in um, in the US and things like that. It's just an Australian term for flat country. Grassland. Yeah, grassland, the Australian grasslands. Yeah. Yeah, well, what is the, the history of cattle production in this region? This is obviously not a place where... <laughs> <laughs> um, cattle are native. Yeah, no. So cattle have been here, I think, from the fifties, fifties and sixties. Um, got more before then, really. But eighteen um, fifties or nineteen fifties. Nineteen fifties, sixties. You know, they were Very they were brought they were brought in. I think there was small holdings before that, but um, it really sort of kicked off in in those days. Um, uh, with the Juraks up in up in Kananara, they were the first ones that really brought a lot of cattle across. They drove them across from, uh, I believe, Queensland, it might be New South. Um, I have to check my history on that one. But um, 
yeah, so the cattle have been up here for a long time. Um, you still find a lot of the uh, the shorthorns in the area. That's where they originally come from. They were the first sort of breeds to be brought across mm. from um, from over east. They drove the shorthorns across. The the Brahmins weren't introduced till quite a lot later on. Um, they're relatively new to Australia. Mm. Um, um, so there's all the feral cattle you find in the hills. They keep coming in. They're still shorthorns. You try and breed right. them out, but they're they're resilient now. They're very much adapted to the area, and they right. they know how to hide. Yeah. Um, so Napier's been a station for a very long time. Um, I think there's this is the third homestead on on Napier. There's two two abandoned homesteads before before they finally moved here. Um, not sure why the first one was abandoned. The second one used to go underwater, so that was a bit of a design flaw. Um, mm-hmm. And they finally moved the homestead to where it is now, which um, thankfully doesn't go underwater. Well located. Um, yeah, um, it was destocked back in the I believe it was the seventies and eighties. Um, the whole Kimberley had a what they called the BTEC program, trying to get rid of brucellosis and tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Kimberleys got uh, destocked, shot out. Um, cattle were either tested and tested negative or or if they came back positive, they were shot. Um, and then what couldn't be mustered in was shot. It was a massive government program. So a lot of properties in Kimberley were completely destocked, you know, shot out, and all those had to start again. Mm. So the previous owner to Napier, he sort of bought it at the end of that period there would have been very few cattle on it and his brought us built it up from there to where it is now, I think about 30 years ago. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Did this region ever have sheep? Or Not up here. So, um, southern Kimberleys along the Fitzroy River, there were sheep, but not, not up here, yeah. So, yeah. But the sheep lasted a little while and then I think that was also given up as a bad idea once the, um, once the burr and the dingoes and the floods and the fires got the better of the sheep um, and eventually just ruled them out for the area, yeah. Well, there will be a lot of people listening that have no idea where the Kimberleys are. Yeah. I think that I'm more geographically knowledgeable than the average person, but I had no idea anything about place names or the geography of Northwestern Australia. Yeah. Uh, Globally, this is inside of the Tropic of Capricorn. I think we're about 18 degrees latitude south of the equator. Yep. Uh, how would you describe this part of Australia geographically? Um, top left-hand corner of Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Kimberley is actually used to um, be a part of or joined up with um, South Africa. Um, I'm hmm. assuming back in Gondwana land, that's why we get the boab trees here. You don't get them anywhere else in mm. Australia. The Kimberley regions is where you get the boab trees, which is pretty well the same, same as the boab trees you get in mm-hmm. South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, it's a very old, very very sort of unique part of a part of Australia. It's flatter than I would have guessed, and of course, many people will only have known of Australia from a movie like The Man from Snowy River. Yeah. And ironically, that looks like one of the only places in Australia where you have those kinds of mountains. Yes. Is yeah. that an accurate assessment? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty well. Um, 
no, yeah, there's part of um, this part of the area is very very flat, and you you might have been wandering around this morning and seeing some hills. Well, yeah. this is actually quite hilly for the area as well. It's um, it gets a lot flatter than this. It's a it's very flat. Um, a flat part of the land, yeah. Mm-hmm. It really captures my imagination that this is Devonian Reef. Is that right, James? Is that yes, term yeah. Perhaps? So this, where we are now, this and the, the hills behind us here, that's part of what they call the Devonian Reef, which is an ancient reef system. It used to be underwater. Um, it's a limestone range. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a very ancient part of part of land, slightly mm-hmm. eroded over time. Mm. Yeah, the, the vegetation is not quite what I would have expected, although I didn't have much basis for an expectation. But uh, I'm, it's an intriguing mix of, of small trees and a lot of grass, but, yeah. but quite a lot of trees. Yeah. What's the dominant vegetation that's here? Um, we're very lucky here in Napier. We've got a lot of different land systems. So um, dominant vegetation is very much dependent on the, on the lands. We've got a lot of black soil, we've got red soil. Mm-hmm. Um, We've got sort of sandy soils to the north, and then we've got the the hills. So um, the black soils definitely dominated by by bunker bunker, a really uh, good large tussock perennial grass, and bohemia trees, just short trees. The red red soils they grow bigger, <coughs> much bigger trees. Um, so you get a lot more here, big big gums up there, white gums and things like that. Um, sort of taller, taller, less palatable grasses. Still, still good country, and then when you get up into the rocks, you really start to get the the shorter, stumpier trees again. Um, spin effects that you got to see yesterday and feel. <laughs> um, that's a very arid country. It's not um, very um, not very good for cattle to run on, but is a good is a good fallback. Yeah, those grasses yeah. look like a grass that decided to want to get a cactus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't envy the cow that has to eat that, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, what is the the station? I think you said is four hundred fifty thousand hectares. Yes, that would convert to about a million acres. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cluster. And you run twenty thousand head of cattle. Yeah, considerably run run about twenty thousand head here. That's the number of mother cows, or that includes everything on the place. That's all adult cattle. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't not care, not including calves, but everything right. everything from weaner up. That's. Approximately twenty thousand head. Obviously, comes and go with the um, sales and the time of the year with the mustering and that. But right. yeah, sort of across the board, it's between nineteen to twenty thousand head. Yeah. And and how is that stopping rate determined? Is that a choice you make? Yes. Yeah. It's a, a choice I actively make. Um, it it's assisted by um, land systems and land system guides. So the um, the government the ag department go through and do um, assessments on the land system and, and say roughly what the stocking rate should be for those land systems. And we go through afterwards and more or less divide the paddock, the paddocks in the property up into the land, those land systems, mm-hmm. find out roughly how many cattle each paddock can handle and what we can handle across the property. Mm-hmm. So I think I last last check we. We have approximately twenty three thousand head carrying capacity here. That's doing um, the land systems. So we're conservatively stocked at the moment, a couple of thousand underneath, um, and the condition country's in very good condition. So we could 
easily up that stocking rate, but mm-hmm. it's um, it's a lot easier to have less cattle and add more than have too many cattle and try and get rid of them. So mm-hmm. it's um, so the land is not privately owned; it's it's government property, and you have a long term lease and the rights to run cattle. Is that how that works? Correct. Yeah. 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 So we um, this is a pastoral lease, um, and we own the lease for the land. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's it's under, you know, the, the government do uh, checks on the land every few years. They go through and check all the all their sites. They have sites across the property to make sure you're not um, deteriorating the land systems. Um, if you if they decide that you are being detrimental to the environment, they can, they can issue you with an order to improve um, or destock an area or something like that they are we are just tenants on the land really mm-hmm. um, so we own everything from the ground up so mm-hmm. we really will just own the grass and we have the right to run cattle on it um, yeah we make improvements obviously fences in put waters in and things like that and we own them but but the, we really only have the rights to the grass mm-hmm. on the way in we drove past several places that uh, had not very much grass, at least not much grass left standing at the moment. Yeah, uh, is that a result of what I would call a higher stocking rate, more animals per unit area? Yes, yeah, I would say it would be that. Yeah, okay, higher, yeah, higher stocking rates. Yeah, right. And then what we looked at yesterday on a tour, uh, there's a lot of standing biomass. In some places, you probably feel like it's way too much yeah. because it's now a, a fire risk. Yes, yeah, uh, but as a result, you have you have more forage than you need, is that right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's been a very good year this year, so <clears throat> we've got a lot more grass still standing now than, than would be in a usual year, but it's still, it's a, it's a lot easier to have too much grass. It's a, it's a good problem to have, really. Right. It gives us options for situations like we are currently facing where we've just lost a lot of our grass to fire. We are in a position where we can move cattle to different paddocks rather than go, oh, God, we can't sell these, mm-hmm. which is nice. Yes, and I would be prone to assume, at least in the States, most of the time you would be able to find a way to sell animals if you needed to destock. That's not always the case, especially if everybody's trying to destock at the same time. But but in general, you could usually sell animals. Uh, I, I've, I've heard that there have been some problems with the live export here, uh, but this will be... A different situation too than I think most people are familiar with. I was not aware that most of the cattle in northern Australia were exported live to Indonesia, which makes sense because it's right there, and there's an awful lot of mouths in Indonesia. Mm. Uh, and I would have expected that it would be easier to ship box beef, but uh, you have said that that the live export is probably important to maintain. These are red Brahmin cattle. And they're being exported live to Indonesia, which is the main meat market. But describe a bit what that what the market for the cattle looks like. Um, where we're positioned at the moment, we are closer to Indonesia than we would be to send our cattle down south. The climate is more aligned with ours as well. It's also a tropical area near the tropics and the Tropic of Capricorn. So when we send our cattle over, we do so live and at not finished weight. So what's our average export weight, James? The average weight, well, we usually sell them between 280 to 380 kilos. It's a sort of optimal live export weight. And that'd be about 600 pounds? 
pounds, yeah. And when we send these cattle over, we are not just sending them over an instant food source, we're sending them over uh, living for a lot of people. So they go into feedlot lots over in Indonesia, often in third world areas, and entire villages are set up supporting these feedlots. I was privileged enough to go over a few years ago and meet these amazing people who are there feeding these animals out by hand, no machinery, and looking after these animals, uh, rearing them up to uh, slaughter weight. We're talking about third world areas. A lot of the time they don't have access to refrigeration, so box beef is not an issue. They'll maybe slaughter one or two beasts a week, and their meat will then go straight out into wet markets to feed people around the place. We are very lucky and privileged, and we don't sort of live in a world that we can understand. Not everyone can have a supply of meat there. Uh, when I was over there, I went to an area where they had a lot of expats from Australia, had some high-end abattoirs, and they were giving some of their scrap meats to a local orphanage. And in the time they'd done that, in the three years they'd done that, they had lowered the medical bills by 80% because these kids were getting more protein. Mm. I think it's something that I'm really keen to keep going for the benefit of our world, not just for this area. That's fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea. It makes sense that not everybody has a freezer where you can Mm. keep 50 kilos of of frozen beef on hand. Yeah, like us. (laughs) Right, right. What are the, so these are, the cattle are transported on, on ships, are these what do the ships look like? Are they do they are they regular cargo ships that have shipping containers designed to hold live cattle, or are they specifically cattle ships like they used to use uh, to bring animals from Hawaii to the mainland? These are these specific <coughs> specific cattle carrying ships. Yeah, they get built for live export. Yeah, so they're um, um yeah large ships depending on how long the how long the haul is. Um, how many cattle they can handle, and they they're specifically designed to to just house cattle back and forth from mm-hmm. from here to Indonesia, um, Vietnam, China. Uh, some of them go to Russia, if not that far. Um, but yeah, there's um, but they're not just cargo ships. They some of them were in the early days, um, you know, just cargo ships converted to this. But now they 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 really are specifically made um, for the for this job, yeah. Um, yeah, readily accessible water. Um, I haven't actually done a trip on one, but my head stockman, he's a, an onboard stock person, so they've got dedicated stock people on there to, mm-hmm. to keep an eye on all these cattle mm-hmm. all day, every day. Yeah. Um, like a floating feedlot. Like a floating feedlot. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll actually put on weight, they've been known to put on weight yeah. on the way across their fed, their fed grain, hay, Water, you know, they're, they're regularly yeah. monitored. If there's a sick one, they pull them out straight away, put them in a sick bay, medication. Um, they get intensive uh, care whilst they're on those mm-hmm. ships. And uh, I think the mortality rate is less than 0.1%, which you you wouldn't even expect to get that in the paddock. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anything more than 0.4 has to be... Um, reported yeah yeah very stringent so they're very they're very keen to keep it as low as possible and you know obviously they're on a, on a boat it's, it's a bit of a drama if they do have sick animals but it's it's they all vet check before they go the, the, the controls that go into um ensuring they're fit and healthy and looked after on 
on the on the boat is um, like nothing else, no mm. other industry you get. You know, you put them to the yards, you put them onto a truck. There's nowhere near the same amount of um, mm-hmm. scrutiny and care that they get. So, yeah. this is a topic for a different day. But I've been reading the book The Fatal Shore. I believe the author is Robert Hughes about the history of Australia's founding, and the description of the of the the hulks, the ships that they transported convicts in from, yeah. uh, from England, they had much, much higher death rates on those ships than you have on your mm. on your cattle ships. Mm. The cattle are treated much better. Yes. Well, you've got enough, you have enough mother cows here that you're exporting a lot of calves per year. How long does it take? What is, I assume you're not gathering up 12,000 calves in the space of a month and moving them all during that time frame. But maybe you are. What does that? What does it look like to gather the calves and then ship them off? Is that happening year round, or do you have a season for that? Um, it sort of happens year round, depending okay. on what the what the market is doing. This year has been a bit bit hit and miss. So um, ideally, what we do is we go and uh, try and sell them early on. We're lucky enough to have uh, road access right to our yards, so we can get the cattle in early before other people. Where, where you might where they might be restricted by road access, um, so our general plan is to get rid of our young cattle early on. Uh, this year has been a bit hard, so um, we haven't managed to get rid of everything straight up. So we actually recently did another yeah. another muster. Um, so usually look about two two to three sales a year to so muster those mm-hmm. cattle in. Um, and in between that, that's when we'll do our our breeder musters. So as we sort of try to get rid of some sale cattle early on to make a bit of space and then we'll muster in our breeders and pull the wieners off they get processed and put out into their their sale paddocks and hopefully the idea is they'll get sold early next year maybe like that year there's a working period of around eight months in the kimberley the rest of the time it's too wet to get around or too hot Mm -hmm. so most of our cattle work is done march until november and who is the buyer is it a is it a, a middleman who buys them from you, like a stock agent, and then it's a company that then tries to sell them, or are you selling it to somebody who's a buyer from Indonesia directly? Um, usually, there's an there's an agent, so usually there's more than one middleman, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Um, but you'll have the sort of the buyers in Indonesia, you'll have the exporter, um, and then you've got the the buyer in Australia, and then. You've got us with our agent, so <clears throat> I mean it is possible to deal directly with the the Indonesians. I know some big companies do it, but there's a lot of risk involved in that, so it's a lot easier for us to very quickly hand it on to our agent, and he will mm-hmm. deal with um, the buyer and the seller from there. Takes the risk of um, takes the risk out of our hands. So um, yeah, there's there's multiple multiple sort of people in the in yeah. the line, yeah. But very rarely do we occasionally we'll have we'll have the exporter or the or the buyer here buying through um, our agent. Yeah. But it's um it's certainly a process usually a process. A few different people in the middle there. They take their little cut but they also take their little their little risks risks as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. sure. Well these are these are red Brahmin cattle and they in terms of USDA Grading, uh, I'm sure they don't end up with a, a choice yield grade too. Nah. Do you? What are your? Do you have other options for selling them besides going to Indonesia? 
Um, like where does Australian meat come from? <clears throat> what's consumed here? Uh, that's that's certainly more the southern southern producers. They'll, yeah. They produce the more uh, um, boss tourist type animals, which are better meat meat gratings. Um, yeah, the Brahmins in the what, what they call the MSA meat standards Australia, anything with a hump automatically gets deducted quite a few points. Um, the meat quality of Brahmins is not isn't very high. Or not, you know, it usually gets graded down quite heavily. Um, but the boss tourist breeds just do not handle the Indonesian weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't they don't want anything to do with boss tourists. They're not terribly worried about um, meat quality. They want quantity at the moment. Yeah. Right. You mentioned that you either have or will be purchasing some drought master bulls. What's yeah. the plan with that? Um, the plan with that is to is to throw a little bit of boss tourists into the into the breed just to get yeah. a bit more meat quality, um, a bit more yield yeah. on the animals. It just means that with our current very good red Brahmin herd, um, we can't sell them to southern markets because um, selling, selling them out of Perth, it's cold down there. Um, they're trying to fatten them up. They don't handle that weather. They handle the tropics. They do not like the cold. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very hard for us to sell them to southern markets. If we don't have the live export, it, it makes it, it's a very uh, sort of niche market mm-hmm. for us. So the idea is we'll throw a bit of boss tourists in there. Um, that should hopefully increase their uh, their yield. We'll be able to sell them, still be able to sell them to Indonesia, but we also got a bit of a market to the south as well. Might not be the, uh, might be getting, not be getting top dollar for them, but we'll be able to at least have a market. Mm-hmm. So it's a fallback. So it just makes a, makes it um, a bit more sustainable, a bit more safe for us to operate as a business. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm jumping around a bit, but there's so many topics we could sit here for hours and we don't have yeah. hours to visit. Uh, you mentioned that you have a wildfires now and driving out across the landscape, you see tons of standing dry grass. Do you do... Uh, active prescribed fire to try to manage that, or are you mostly trying to manage fuel loads with grazing? We were on a tour uh, last week up on the Dampier Peninsula where there was quite a lot of, you know, really planned out, deliberate, uh, scientifically managed Aboriginal burning to avoid catastrophic fire. Yeah. How much of that is done here? Quite a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, um, yeah, you, you have to do have to do early burns um, in this in this landscape, otherwise before yeah, it dries out. Too before it dries out, otherwise, yeah. If, if you don't if you don't manage fire, fire will will manage you. Right. Um, you need to do something to prevent it. Um, we do a lot of um, early season burning. This year was a very tricky year for us because we had a very narrow window in which to burn. Um, we had a had a lot of rain, so we had a lot of green grass, a lot of a lot of grass. Um, so it took a very long time before the grass would burn. But then when it did burn, because um, it was such a large grass load, it kept burning. So I had about a two or three week window in which to, to do my early season burning. Um, and that really, really restricted me. But um, because we don't have enough cattle to to really manage the, the grazing, um, you need to do burning. You know, if, 
sort of every three three to four years you'd be looking at burning a patch. Um, and that's a, also another way to to manage your land. You burn these patches that are getting old and moribund and the cattle will go onto those burns. Um, they'll eat that short green pick, it'll give another area mm. of rest and you just keep keep moving around, mosaic burning, just patches every year. You get um you get fire scar maps, you can see which sections have been burned and even just by driving around you can see which sections have been burned recently and um yeah, any time in the last three years. So you try and aim for three to four year rotation on the burning to keep the grasses, the fuel load low and to keep good green green grass coming through for the cattle. And that manage their um, manage their grading radiuses. Does the tree cover expand in the absence of fire, and does the fire also serve to uh, reduce what we would call the encroachment of woody species? Yes, both. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the the more cool season burns you do, the the trees do will, right. It doesn't will, will stop. Tend to increase, yeah. Um, so, but that's a slow. That is a slow process, and and um, depending on the grass load, like at the moment, we've had quite a few hot fires go through. Um, that would have that'll seriously affect it. That'll affect the trees. So we will we will lose epic trees in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, in a way, that's that's also managing the managing the the trees. Um, there's not there's not so many trees here that it's it's a it's an issue for us at the moment. It's not a yeah. Like we're getting woodland thickening, it's not really a, a major issue for us at the moment. Um, and yeah, uh, like the early season burns, the idea is that they'll go out overnight, so they they're still hot enough to to burn during the day and burn the grasses off. So a lot of your woody weeds will get will get burnt out with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, the, the hotter fires, and they'll come along and they'll kill the trees, and they'll do more a lot more damage than. A lot more damage than a cold fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week at the Australian Rangeland Society conference, there was quite a bit of talk about feral animals. Uh, not as much as I would have expected on on exotic plants that cause problems, but but more with the animals. Uh, what kind of feral animals do you have that cause problems? Uh, we've got pigs. We've got as luckily in Napier here, we don't have too much of a problem with um, feral animals, but pigs, horses, donkeys, camels. Um, they're probably the main dingoes. Yeah, dog. They're dingoes. They're not an exotic animal, but they cause issues with the um, with calf loss. But um, donkeys, donkeys used to have a massive impact on the Kimberleys. There was more donkeys than cattle in the Kimberleys. Um, they're very hardy animals. They can they can live in the, the hills up here and, and continue to breed. So mm. there's been a massive program over the past forty years to um, cull out. Donkeys, um, camels can be a major issue in certain years. They come in, they you know, prefer to live in the desert, but when the desert swamps and soaks dry up, they come into mm. into properties and they'll mm. destroy fences, waters, you know, flog out the country. Um, big animals. Where did they come animals. from? How did they get here? Um, um, they've been in Australia for a long time. They've, they're... Um, uh, they're feral all through. They came over as pack animals. They would have come over as pack animals, you know, just as a beast of burden. Right. I believe they were actually trying to buy them back because in Australia we now have very pure bloodlines that don't <laughs> exist anymore. Um, mm. So they've been trying to get our camels back. Which oh, is interesting. Or in the Middle East. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. It's very strange. Yeah. Huh. So, so um, yeah, and and pigs as well. Like pigs, obviously domestic animal, they just get let go and they they go wild and yeah. um, they can be very very destructive to waterways and little bongs and things like that. You know, they they root up grasses and in your most vulnerable areas around waters and swamps and things like that. They do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Obviously, but the disease risk with pigs as well. Mm-hmm. Foot, moment, that's something everyone's thinking foot about. Foot and mouth lepto. Um, there's a few few mm-hmm. diseases that they they have been known to carry. Um, there's regular testing done by uh, the egg department on feral pigs in the area to make sure they're not carrying okay. any carrying any any diseases. Yeah. Um, but pigs across the whole North Australia is a is a major issue, and yeah. so especially with foot and mouth. On our doorstep over in Indonesia, it's a it's a it's a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Driving down the road, there's big billboards that say "croc danger is real." Yeah. Don't take a risk. Do the crocs control the pigs at all, or is there nah, not enough of them? No, nah, not enough of them. Do you think it'd be a great snack for a crocodile? No, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure the crocs love a little bit of a little bit of pork in their fork every now and then. Um, but no, nah, there's not. There's the crocodiles. The big crocodiles live in sort of only in certain areas, and the pigs will they sort of yeah. prefer the swamps and the smaller waterholes and things like that. Um, so whilst I'm sure the crocs have a good snack every now and then, they it's not a not a major risk. Not a primary food source. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, this is pretty. I realize you have a wet season, but in general, it's a low. Uh, it's dry right now. Yep. And in most places where you've got cattle and it's dry, water is a limiting factor to distribution. Uh, what is your primary source of stock water, and uh, are all those locations, you know, historical, fixed, or are you always thinking about where else can we put water in order to get better use of the landscape? I'm I'm always thinking about where else we can put waters. Um, you can. It's a bit like having too much grass. It's not really. It's not really a problem. Yeah, it's a good problem to have if you do. Um, no, I mean, yeah. The, Generally, it's, there's there's nowhere you'll find where it's um, overwatered. Um, we're we're lucky here; we've got a lot of natural water sources. But if, mm. if we have a dry year, they dry up. They come back under the man-made waters. Um, the more waters you can put in, the better. So, and the water source in the well. Yeah, yeah, pump water. Yeah, yeah bore water. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're lucky here; we've got quite a few. It's quite easy to get um, groundwater from here. Um, where you can't get groundwater, you put in dams. Um, where you can't get a dam in, you can pipe water from other other water points to there. It's a it's an expensive, excessive expensive process. But um, the more the more waters you can have, the more you can spread out, the more evenly you can have your grading radiuses. It just works out better across the board for, for everything. I mean, um, yeah, water is life. So the more you've got, the better it is. With uh, with English breeds or Bostoris cattle, I would say that water consumption in the summertime would be around 15 to 20 gallons per day. Do you have any idea what, do the Brahmins use less water? Um, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about in leaders. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I, especially this time of the year, like getting cow, it's between 80 to 100 liters. Yeah. Um, that's per animal. So I think that's yeah. about the same as, as so. yeah. Yeah, uh, a herd a bull will drink about 110 to 120 liters mm-hmm. um, per day. So this time of the year, I sort of 
if you're you know if you're putting cattle into the yards, I would bank on between 80, 80 to hundred liters per mm-hmm. head per day. So you've sort of got to ration that out in your mind of how how long you can hold those cattle in the yards and you know have them in the area before you start to need to move them on because mm-hmm. um, you know, a hundred thousand liter tank only has when you sort of think about so many head days in it, so you sort of need to budget that out, yeah. And the more water points you can have around a paddock, you know, you can sort of spread those numbers out. It makes it a lot less um, less of an issue if you have one water point go down, break down or something like that. It's it's Mm -hmm. less of an issue. You can sort of leave that for a few days until you get time to fix it rather than spending all day and all night out there getting it done just so so your cattle can have water. Well, I didn't prep you for the question, but what, what would you say are the biggest challenges to raising cattle here? The climate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say I'd say waters and and managing the pastures. I mean, it obviously sounds pretty simplistic, but um, you know, the cattle. So boys hammer a certain area the, the better grasses first and you're mm-hmm. trying to manage it so that they they spread that grading grazing out that's that's the biggest challenge um how do you do that whether you do it with fire with water points um with fences uh, that's that's sort of a, a bit of a juggling act which one mm-hmm. works in which paddock um <clears throat> we've got big paddocks here i think the biggest paddock we've got is fifty thousand hectares um so and you know the water's spread out across across the paddock, but at the moment I'd say sixty to seventy percent of those cattle are watering off probably two water points. Mm. So how do you get them to move? Do you, you mm. do it with fire? Do you do you put into the budget to put a fence in to mm. stop them going into that area? Um, yeah, trying to trying to go to get the cattle to go to where you, where you want them to go mm. through those different managing practices, and it doesn't work. The same in each area. You've got to you have to swap and change um, depending on the year and depending on the cattle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about on the marketing side? Any? Like, just taking through the future of the beef industry here, and uh, you're making some plans to try to expand your options for where you could sell cattle. Yeah. Do you feel like that's optimistic? Um. I think that's I think that's doable. Um, I, the live export market, I'm I'm always unsure about whether it's whether it's got a future. I think I think logically it does and should, but um, there's a lot of pressure from certain groups to abolish live export. Um, so whether that wins through in the end or not, I'm not sure. Um, but I always, always fall back on the idea that there's a lot of mouths in Indonesia to feed. Um, somebody's going to, they're going to get food one way or the other. So I think there'll always be a, be a market for Australian cattle. It's just a matter of how we provide that to them. Yeah. yeah. Whether we end up going the, the box beef line, whether the live export continues, um, I'm not sure. Um, it, that's very much a, a social license thing more than mm-hmm. more than a market thing. Well, it's certainly the same in the states. I mean, there's a lot of work going into various kinds of quality assurance programs from 
animal handling on the ranch to animal handling and transportation to how animals are handled once they get to a abattoir. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that surprised me the most is that I have not seen as many insects as I expected. And like in the American South, uh, external parasites and, and insects are pretty significant. It's something we have to think about and plan for and deal with. Yeah. Is that here? And I'm just not seeing it right now because it's the dry season? Yes, pretty well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Nothing likes the dry season, even the bugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, the... Um, the there is external parasites. We've got tick. We've got buffalo fly. Yeah. Um, they're they're all biting, sucking insects, um, and they are <clears throat> their their time to shine is during the wet season. Mm-hmm. So, um, whilst it's the best time for the cattle to put on weight, it's also the hardest time for them to to deal with it because they've got you know, all the external parasites. That's when the worms are out as well. So you've got mm-hmm. internal parasites. Um, yeah. It's um, it is an issue, and it's something we sort of plan for every year. Especially uh, at the moment, um, Indonesia has a has an issue with lumpy skin disease. Um, so any any animal that comes through with with fly bites or any marks on their on their skin is is more as automatically ruled out of going across there. Yeah. So whilst the you know, flies might not be affecting the animals too much, any any little raised lump will get it. Knock it back, so that be held for another year to um, uh, before it can be sold. So, um, yeah, it's definitely an issue that's always there, and it's even more so now. Yeah. Yeah. Will you to clearly see yourselves as caretakers of the land, caretakers of the animals? Uh, a friend of mine in the states. Uh, James Rogers likes to say we take care of heartbeats, the, the people that work here, the animals that work here, the livestock, I mean, the wildlife that live here, yeah, and the people that come to visit. And, and I, I see a, a pretty similar attitude in, in how you see your role as uh, as caretakers. And I've, over the last week, I've heard the term custodian, steward, caretaker. Yeah. Uh, what, what words would you use to describe your role as taking care of everything that lives here? I suppose a custodian of the land. That's very, that's very well used in the area. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not here for, we're only here for our lives. Yeah, which isn't that long. So, um, yeah, we try and do do the best we can for the yeah for the time we're here. Mm. We really do believe, like, if you've got good land, you've got good animals. If you've got happy people, it all works together. Mm-hmm. Everything works better when it's well looked after. Mm-hmm. So we try and look after everything. Yeah, I think one of the terms that was used by uh, the Aboriginal woman that provided a welcome to the Congress was, was Mabu Buru. Healthy land. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I like, I like the term uh, country, you know, referring to sort of everything that's out there as opposed to, to land. Like I would use the word land or say that people are land stewards, and it has a broader meaning than just the dirt, obviously. But yeah. But I like the term country. It just seems to carry up a broader, thicker connotation than just land, as in, oh boy, there's land. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a land mass. There, there's a lot that's going on there. Yeah. And uh, the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. Yes. And it's hard yeah. to communicate that. Uh, would you say that that, that that attitude is common among people that 
that manage these cattle stations or not so much? It is. It, it's certainly amongst the ones that have spent the most time here, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, if you've been on the station for long enough, you, you realise you're not just here to, to grow cattle. It's, it's about the whole the whole part, the, the land, the, the land, the earth, what's under the earth, what grows above the earth. The history of what's been there before. <laughs> what's been there before, what mm-hmm. sort of condition the land is and what... You know, what phase it's going through, whether you're getting rain or not, and then and then it moves on to <clears throat> the cattle and the people and the infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. But you know, you've got to you're um, I'm just an undersized gardener, really. <laughs> yeah. It's um yeah, it's you, you gotta grow the grow the grass, the trees, everything yeah. that there is part of the part of the ecosystem. Um it seems like a somewhat unforgiving environment, meaning that if you if you tried to push it very hard for too long, it feels like it would it would something would break. It does, and yes. you couldn't persist in yeah in overusing the land. No, yeah, it's um, it's a very unforgiving unforgiving area. You um if you, it only takes one one mistake, and and it takes a very long time, a lot of money to um recover to recover. Yeah. Yep, every every decision you make um, has the potential to cost lives one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Cattle or the you know the condition of the land or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, native species here. You know, not just um, grasses, but lots of. Recently, I've been seeing lots of little furry creatures. Little bandicoots. <laughs> little bandicoots. I've seen a white water, mm-hmm. uh, white-tailed water rat recently, which is something I haven't seen in a very long time. So it's it's it's. Hardly to know that the country's in really good condition and can sustain mm-hmm. those those animals, but um, it's always in the back of your mind that this could be just a phase. I could very quickly make a bad decision, and mm-hmm. it could I could ruin that. So mm-hmm. it's always a bit of a weight on your mind thinking about that. Well, I'll stop interrogating you. And <laughs> Whatever else you had today, which may include fighting fire, unfortunately. <laughs> we'll I future. want to mention that one of my daughters is named after a, a, a tall Scottish woman that we met in Helensburg, and she became my wife's best friend when she was 95 years old. <laughs> and her father was a was a, a sheep man that came over from Scotland. Yeah. And you remind me a bit of her. Yeah. Yeah. She was colorful. She never married, actually. She was a school teacher. Yeah. Uh, but she cut a pretty broad swath. Uh, where we live in Ellensburg, Washington. Yeah. It's nice. Taught a lot of people, uh, and she had many, many uh, figurative children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I want to publicly thank you for your hospitality, and I sincerely hope that I can go back sometime. Yeah, it was a pleasure to meet you. Lovely to have you. I'd be happy to be here again sometime, too. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. 
This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.